You're listening to the ClearTrack HR Podcast, a show about employee benefits, employment law, and other topics for HR professionals. Don't forget to subscribe if you like what you hear. Now here's our host, Zach Finney. Okay, thank you for listening to the ClearTrack HR Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Finney, and I am very excited to welcome and introduce our guest for today, Ben Conley, partner at SciFarth. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm great, Zach. Thanks for having me. No problem. Our pleasure. So we're going to go over dependent audit, which ClearTrack definitely specializes in, but we want to look at it kind of a all different aspects, and that's why we got the expert Ben Conley here with us on the podcast, really dive into some compliance issues, how that relates to dependent audit. So Ben, if you're ready, can I shoot off some questions towards you? Absolutely. Fire away. Cool. So it's as far as advice for employers considering de- dependent audit, are there any reasons why you shouldn't remove ineligible employees from your plan after conducting a dependent audit? Uh, no. I mean, other than just sort of like um, uh, kindness and generosity, although uh, sometimes kindness and ge- generosity can get you into trouble. Um, legally, uh, ERISA requires that plan fiduciaries, which are the people who run the plan, which is, you know, the organization sponsoring the plan and their HR benefits professionals, that they administer the plan in accordance with its terms. Um, And one of those terms that's required to be in the plan is the definition of who is an eligible participant on the plan. Uh, And if a plan covers someone who does not meet that definition of an eligible participant, that's a breach of fiduciary duty. You're also then paying plan assets, meaning people who are paying premiums and uh, taking those premiums and applying those to claims of people who don't qualify under the plan, uh, which is a misuse of plan assets. So while certainly we understand this sort of justification for, um, you know, this person's covering a neighbor's kid and the neighbor lost their job or whatever the case might be, uh, we get that, but, um, you know, that, that doesn't override ERISA's fiduciary principles. And our standard is always, well, if you truly want to cover that person on your plan, amend the plan to cover that person, right? Uh, uh, You can write a plan to cover pretty much anybody you want subject to certain exceptions and subject to certain tax consequences. And if you want to cover neighbor's kids, uh, have at it, but we're guessing you don't because that's not what your plan says. So the better approach there is to remove from the plan anyone you identify as ineligible to participate. And would it be fair to say that when you are, these employers are looking at removing ineligible employees, I mean, at I mean, you definitely want to stay consistent, right? So they don't want to pick and choose where they allow one person to be removed, one person stay. It needs to be a consistent method throughout the whole process. Correct. Another requirement under ERISA, which is the law governing this whole space, is that similarly situated participants be treated the same under the plan. Um, So creating one-off exceptions based on uh, sympathetic situations or higher-up management or whatever the case might be, it's just a further breach of fiduciary duty. Right, right. Thanks, Ben. And, you know, we just had this situation come up last week where we had a client ask us, can we do a random set of employees versus performing an audit on an entire employee population? What advice would you give employers that are wanting to go that route of using a random sample set of employees versus an audit of the entire population? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a couple different ways you can come out of this, right? Uh, one of the reasons why people do depend on eligibility audits is to save the company money, uh, because the more 
people you're planning are, co are covering, the more you're spending. Um, but that's certainly the case for ineligible dependents. So uh, from that angle, uh, if you pick 5% of the population and 1% of that 5% is ineligible, that's a lot less savings than if you pick the whole population and pick up 1% of ineligibles under that whole population. Right. Uh, the second point is, uh, you know, again, the fiduciary principles, which is if there's somebody ineligible in your plan, you should really be taking steps to remove those people from eligibility for the plan. Um, and then, I mean, the final piece is just, you know, why are you doing this, right? Um, uh, you, there's not an obligation necessarily to run a dependent eligibility audit. The obligation is just to only cover otherwise eligible dependents. Uh, and if you're going to invest in taking the steps to run a dependent eligibility audit, um, it seems to make sense, I guess, that you would just uh, perform a comprehensive audit rather than a targeted approach that isn't really going to accomplish that broader goal. Right, right. And I know we, we hear a lot from employers that are concerned about performing a dependent audit due to the cost, but really uh, they lean more towards the employee morale. Do you have any advice you might give employers that are concerned with employee morale uh, taking a hit when performing a dependent audit? Yeah, I mean, I think that that piece can largely be controlled by the process and the communication surrounding the audit. In other words, um, there's often a misperception amongst employees about their health insurance that, you know, this is my right, I'm paying for this, you shouldn't have any say in it as the employer. Um, but what they fail to understand and what employers know is that often 70, 80, 90% of the actual cost of health insurance is being footed by the company. And when those dollars are going out the door towards ineligible persons, that makes the whole thing more expensive for everyone else. So to a certain extent, this is for the benefit of employees just as much as it is for the employer. Um, the other piece on the communications, right? Um, you either did something wrong here or you didn't as an employee. Um, in other words, it, there are certainly circumstances where somebody just inadvertently enrolls an ineligible dependent, but usually that's not the case. And so if you're an employee who has enrolled your spouse or your kids or whatever the case might be, you really have nothing to worry about. Uh, you produce the documentation um, and everything is, is good to go. You're, everything is normal. Um, but what we often see is that these are run poorly and there isn't an adequate effort to communicate to employees what's, why this is happening, what's required of them, what this means. And as a result, you end up sweeping up into the net people who otherwise have enrolled eligible dependents. And that can cause some heartache, and that certainly can impact morale. But if you have a good process in place where you're communicating it, you're making clear what forms of documentation are required, you're making it easy to produce that documentation, um, then that should make it a much more streamlined, smooth process and cause a lot less heartache from an employee morale perspective. You know, I, I can't agree with you more on that, Ben. You know, we found that the communication is so important prior to the audit beginning. So we really try to push this co-branded communication or internal communication, stating just what you mentioned. What are the eligible dependents? Educate the employees on that at first. Let them know what is going to be asked for as far as verification documents and then the reasoning behind, which is really at the end of the day, it, it lowers the health care costs for all the employees. When you're right, removing these right, ineligible exactly. dependents, right. Perfect. So let, let's dive into the kind of an employer rights, liability, and compliance. 
can a plan recover claim payments that were made for ineligible employees or can a claim be denied on ineligible dependents? Well, when you're talking about what you do once you identify an ineligible dependent, it largely becomes more circumstantial. And what I mean by that is the Affordable Care Act passed uh, back in 2010, uh, imposed a limitation or more specifically a prohibition on what we would call rescissions. A rescission is really a retroactive termination of coverage. Um, and what the IRS has said is that, uh, you know, they identified this practice, which was predominant in the insurance carrier industry, not necessarily under employer health plans, but this practice of an insurance carrier finding out that one of the claimants has a catastrophic condition that's going to be very high cost. The carrier goes back and just goes through the entire history of that interaction with that individual to find something that the individual had a footfault or failure to report or didn't disclose a knee condition or whatever the case might be. And on the basis of that, retroactively cancel coverage and deny payments for all these high cost claims. Uh, the government didn't want that to happen when they passed the Affordable Care Act, so they prohibited these types of rescissions, except in the instance of fraud uh, or intentional misrepresentation of a material fact. Um, now, with dependent eligibility audits, it's tough, right? Because depending on the circumstances, uh, you may not have evidence sufficient to justify that fraud or intentional misrepresentation of a material fact occurred. Um, and so oftentimes what we see is if an employer identifies someone uh, who uh, is otherwise ineligible, depending on the circumstances, they may just cut off that person prospectively and call it a day in terms of recouping prior claims paid out on an individual's behalf. Now, certainly in other circumstances, you can determine that there was evidence that this was an intentional misrepresentation. Like, for instance, the person said, you know, uh, this is my spouse, but it was really their neighbor or something like that. Uh, in those circumstances, to the extent an employer wants to get, I don't want to say more aggressive, but wants to push the envelope a little bit more, uh, again, that type of retroactive termination is permissible if there's fraud or intentional misrepresentation of material fact. Um, and, you know, in that circumstance, you also have to kind of work with your third-party administrator because many third-party administrators regardless of whether the person uh, was clearly not a dependent, have limitations on how far they can go back in terms of reprocessing those claims, usually 60 or 90 days. So you might be limited just by process in terms of what you can do. But I do want to make clear that there are some restrictions on retroactive terminations unless you do have that fraud or intentional misrepresentation of material facts. And as far as a, from a carrier's perspective, can an insurance carrier cancel the plan if they knew there were significant ineligible dependents on that plan? Well, yeah, it really de depends on the nature and scope of the, uh, the sort of uh, ineligible enrollment, if you will. Um, so certainly if a carrier identifies someone as ineligible, that carrier has the right to deny claims to that individual. And if the employer had knowledge of that, and chose not to terminate that ineligible individual, then that creates a real problem because the employer has told the employee, yeah, we're gonna let you keep this person on the plan. The carrier who the employer expected to pay claims, either an insurance carrier or a reinsurance carrier, if that's the case, um, had, didn't agree to that. And suddenly the employer is self-funding that benefit. And notably, I wanna distinguish between traditional insurance and, and reinsurance because in the context of reinsurance, Everything we're talking about here about rescissions and prohibitions and the like 
don't apply directly to reinsurance carriers. I mean, it's state by state what happens there, but reinsurance carriers aren't subject to that restriction. So while an employer may be limited in its ability to retroactively terminate coverage, the carrier potentially is not subject to that restriction and can retroactively terminate coverage. And then more to your point, I think, if there is broad-based evidence that the employer has disregarded or hasn't implemented a sufficient dependent verification process at the time of enrollment, um, the carrier could potentially cancel the policy. That's going to be policy-specific, but certainly as an employer, you are making representations and warranties about the covered population under your plan. And if the carrier finds that those representations were inaccurate, that's often grounds for termination of that policy. And, you know, I've heard you mention ERISA so far since we started. Uh, am I right in assuming that performing a dependent audit will help the employer maintain ERISA compliance? Yeah, that's right. For all the reasons we stated, right, which is um, there are fiduciary obligations on uh, the plan administrator, which includes the company and its designated people who work to run the plan, that they're administering it in accordance with its terms. And this extends to all types of things, service provider oversight, um, ensuring that claims payments are only going out for covered services, but also just ensuring that there's a process to only cover people who are eligible under the terms of the plan. So um, there's a bunch of different ways to accomplish that, but dependent eligibility audit is one of the most surefire ways to ensure that you're only covering eligible tenants. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Uh, let's talk about the dependent audit process as a whole. And it seems like every client at the very first call, one of the first questions they ask is, when is a best time to conduct a dependent eligibility audit? Great question. Um, I don't know that there's necessarily a perfect time. You could do it at any point, but what we often see is that it follows open enrollment. Uh, that's because you've just brought in a new set of uh, dependents into the plan, and oftentimes at open enrollment, there isn't that sort of production of evidence of the dependent's eligibility, and so it's a good time uh, before the plan starts uh, laying out all sorts of costs for expenses to come in and uh, check on the population and ensure that people who have just been enrolled uh, are actually eligible for coverage. Uh, I mean, later in the year, um, that, that's a lot less effective potentially because, um, uh, you know, at, at that point, you may have had a full year's worth of paying claims on an ineligible tenant. And as we discussed, you might be hindered in your ability to go back and retroactively terminate coverage for those persons. But again, it works, right? I, at any point, it, you can come in and run a dependent eligibility audit and identify who uh, may or may not be eligible. Um, it's just that right after enrollment, that's the most effective time potentially. Yeah, and I, I agree with you, Ben. A lot of times we're trying to think of the best time. It's, it's so client and company specific, you know? So it, it's, right. and we find that, like you, like you mentioned, in the employers that perform the dependent audits after open enrollment, like you said, there's not that big lag time of months for them to just go back and add any dependent back to coverage as they would if you did a dependent audit prior to open enrollment. We found right. the, the most successful way to kind of, for those clients that just really want to do it right before open enrollment is they move into this perpetual new hire process where then it just becomes part of their onboarding month to month process and they can catch them then. But I mean, you're is that absolutely right. If if you're doing a dependent audit months after your open enrollment, you just you're running that risk of paying those claims and costs for ineligible dependents. That's great information. Exactly. Um, 
Is there a set amount of time before a dependent can be removed after an audit? So a company completes a dependent audit, they're, they identify ineligible dependents. Do they have a set amount of time they have to give the employer wait before they can remove them off coverage? Well, it depends on the approach the employer is going to take. If you intend to rescind the coverage, in other words, if you believe there was fraud or intentional misrepresentation of material fact, you are required to give the employee notice and then 30 days opportunity to appeal that determination before terminating coverage. Now, once you terminate, you know, if they don't appeal or if their appeal fails, you can go retro with the termination. But the idea is, look, you're doing something significant here, which is retroactively eliminating somebody's coverage, which means they may have been incurring claims that they're not going to be responsible for. So uh, the government wants that person to have the ability to say, oh, hold on, um, you know, I actually, you know, do have that marriage certificate or birth certificate or whatever the case might be. Uh, uh, if you're going prospective, though, in other words, if you've identified that somebody has an ineligible dependent, and you say, we're kicking this person off, you know, the claims that have been incurred or water under the bridge, but we're keeping this person off, there is no requirement that you give them advance notice. Now, you might want to, uh, at the same time, do something similar to the rescission context where you give a little bit of lead time so that person can go line up other coverage uh, or appeal if they believe that that decision is, is incorrect. Uh, but legally, there is no advance notice time if you're just talking about prospective terminations. And, and just to kind of segue off that, Ben, is do employers have to send a, a formal written communication to the employees or they just have to notify them either via email, internal messaging, there just has to be some form of notification or does it need to be a written letter letting them know when their dependents would be removed? Well, great question. So, I mean, these rules were all, all written decades ago uh, before smartphones existed, before computers existed. So take all that with a grain of salt. Um, the gold standard is always first class mail. Uh, because in various contexts, the Department of Labor has said, we view that as being uh, the method of communication that is most reasonably calculated to ensure actual receipt. Now, I'd argue that in this day and age, that's not the best method because somebody's a lot more likely to get a text message or an email uh, or secure messaging, you know, app uh, message than they are to get a letter in the mail. Uh, but that's where the rules existed. Now, that being said, there's all kinds of safe harbors within that rule, including that if the employee uh, has work-related uh, ac computer access that is integral to their job, uh, you are permitted to communicate with that individual electronically. Um, so you have some options. Uh, the, the, the technical standard that actually applies is that they should be notified in a manner reasonably calculated to ensure actual receipt. So if you feel comfortable that you've met that standard, uh, then that's what's legally required. Gotcha. And I know we talked a lot about the employer and compliance and ERISA. Let's kind of turn our focus to the actual dependent and employee. Um, do the employees have any rights or claims because their employer allowed ineligible dependents on the plan, either knowingly or through failure to conduct a dependent audit? I mean, potentially. So the way that ERISA works, any participant within the plan or their representative, which could be their lawyer, can bring a claim against the plan's fiduciaries, which again is the employer uh, and its designated HR representatives for breach of fiduciary duty. So if uh, a employee set, uh, believes that there is widespread fraud occurring on the plan and you know there's a host of ineligible dependents enrolled, 
and they believe that they've been harmed directly or indirectly either because claims aren't being paid or the premiums have been driven up or whatever the case might be, they could certainly bring in a lawsuit against the employer alleging breach of fiduciary duty. And under those lawsuits, there's all kinds of fee shifting mechanisms, including the right to recover attorney's fees. So certainly not a situation you want to see yourself in. Now, I mean, we've been seeing uh, that more broadly. Uh, we've seen more derivatives uh, of that along the way. Uh, but certainly if you had a circumstance where there was widespread noncompliance, that, that would be a risk. Interesting. And, you know, can employers or really should employers assist in providing ineligible dependents either advice or alternative benefit options if they have a dependent removed from coverage? Yeah, I mean, legally, no, you're not required to, but I think it makes sense, right? Because among other things, you need to let the people know that they're, this is not a COBRA event because COBRA is just continuation on the health plan. And if they're ineligible, they shouldn't have been on the health plan in the first place, nor should they remain on the health plan. Um, beyond that, uh, it's not a bad idea to outline other coverage options because, you know, oftentimes these circumstances are not such that it's just direct and an intentional fraud, but perhaps a misunderstanding of the plan rules. And you know, back to that original question that you posed at the beginning about employee morale, that provides a much softer landing pad to tell an employee, look, uh, love to help you out, but legally we're not able to cover this person under the plan. Here are some other options you might consider, including, you know, Medicaid, which is essentially free, or the marketplace, which has generous government subsidies to help offset the cost of coverage, or so on and so forth. Uh, and we've found that that softer touch on the back end can really help that morale issue. Right. And, you know, we get asked this a lot too. How should an organization handle an exception to a dependent eligibility rule? Yeah, great question. I mean, our, our, our standard advice is just don't do it, right? Because if you want an exception, just amend the plan. In other words, um, if you want to cover a specific category of dependents, cover it across the board. Don't pick and choose who you intend to cover. There's so many reasons for that. ERISA's fiduciary responsibilities, uh, the, the reinsurance issues we were talking about earlier. If you're covering somebody who's covered by the terms of the plan, then you're fine. Uh, if you're covering somebody who is not, then you may not have that reinsurance on the back end. Uh, so our standard messaging is uh, don't go that route. And I am in complete agreement. Ben, we are Running out of time, I always a lot of times when we do these podcasts, if I feel smarter after the end of it, then I think it was a success. So I, I think we did very well because I feel, I feel a lot <laughs> more informed after talking to you. But before we got started, before we you know got on air, you were mentioning a, a blog. Yes, yeah. So uh, yeah, I was just mentioning that we have uh, finally grown into the modern times and have gone from traditional st uh, stuffy lawyerly client alerts to uh, more impromptu blog posting. And so we, Sidefar is our benefits group, which consists of about 50 nationwide benefit compliance counselors, have started a blog. It's www.beneficiallyyours.com. Uh, and I was, I was about to try and spell that, but then I realized we'd be here another <laughs> half an hour. Uh, but uh, feel free to pop on, check it out. We've got all kinds of great advice there on a variety of timely contemporaneous benefits topics. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. And we'll be sure to provide that in the show notes. So right there underneath the podcast link, you'll see in the show notes, both a link to the blog and show and notes from this podcast in particular. And until next time, 
This is Zach Finney, your host of the ClearTrack HR podcast, and our guest, Ben Conley. Thank you so much, and talk to you soon.